Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Nev. Apologies, the flickering screen made me all anxious. Can we make a little deal? If it, if it switches off um, and I don't notice, just play cool and listen well. Is that all right? I'll notice at some stage when I turn around to talk to it and I'll notice it's not there. Um, perhaps the Lord is teaching me not to be so dependent on screens. Well, uh, let's be dependent on screens for a moment. There's an old adage that says those who don't learn from history are, do are doomed to repeat it. And uh, this satirical picture from 1885, it highlights the way that the mistakes of the past are uh, often repeated. Let me give you a moment um, to talk to the person beside you about what you think the meaning of this picture is. Um, hopefully you can see it well enough. Give, it, give you a moment, see what you think it tells us about history. small alrighty I realized that our illustrator in 1885 might have done a, a more you know screen friendly image which he didn't um, I think it's a it's a, a, a commentary on the fragile nature of colonialism uh, right at the back is that exactly what Stephen said um, right at the back you've got Julius Caesar toppling off uh, a, a, a bunch of stones that represent the countries that he had conquered, uh, the Roman Empire conquered, um, the last one was Africa. Uh, in the front, uh, it, well, actually, who's the guy in the middle? Can you work that out? That's Napoleon. He tumbles off uh, a bunch of countries, the last one of which is Russia. The guy at the front, here's the, for my history buffs, who is the father of British colonialism? Joe Bidwell? No, it's not. John Bull, apparently. I also had to look it up, don't worry. Um, and you can see the uh, English Empire there is propped up by weapons, uh, but teetering on the edge of collapse. But it's um, Napoleon who I want to talk about. I thought this was going to go so much better, but I think the picture's too hard to see. That's okay. Um, I want to talk about Napoleon a minute, uh, for a moment, because he toppled uh, over Russia, uh, his conquest of Russia. And uh, as we said before, those who uh, don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, in 1812, uh, the Napoleon, uh, Napoleon assembled an army of some 615,000 soldiers. Uh, he wanted to invade Moscow and subdue his former ally, Tsar Alexander I. He marched into Russia. Uh, during the summer, it wasn't um, the enemy soldiers that decimated his forces. It was actually typhus um, carried by lice. But eventually, they reached Moscow, and uh, they entered Moscow and declared victory in a city that had already been abandoned by those who lived there. Um, however, the problem was on the return trip, uh, coming back towards um, France, temperatures plummeted to minus 37 degrees Celsius, and uh, soldiers' lips would freeze together, and thousands of horses and soldiers were killed, uh, facing such harsh conditions with little food, um, as few as 10,000 out of the original 600,000 made it home. And it was a thing that uh, Napoleon never recovered from. Apparently, he drafted more men, but that was really the end of his success. Now, um, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. In 1941, Hitler uh, decided to launch his own invasion of Russia. Uh, known as Operation Barbarossa, he believed victory would be simple. And so he sent his troops into battle, ill-prepared for the impending winter. Again, plummet, uh, temperatures plummeted and 
A lack of warm coats and hats meant that many returned home without noses, ears, eyelids even, fingers. By the end of Barbarossa, more than uh, 800,000 Soviets had been killed and 6 million uh, uh, wounded or captured, but of the German soldiers, 775,000 were casualties in this campaign. It made Barbarossa one of the deadliest military operations in history. See, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And as we uh, open the Bible today, we're coming back to the story of Jesus. We're going to see echoes of history repeating itself. And the question for us is, what do we learn from the past? And how can we learn to trust God when the future looks uncertain? So why don't we pray that God would reveal the answer to that now as we uh, open his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, will you teach us about your unchangeable plans and the way that you redeem all things through Christ? Help us to see him and to cling to him. And we pray in his precious name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're jumping back into our series in Matthew 1 to 4 that we started before Christmas called Follow the Star. Um, It's all about seeing who Jesus is revealed as in those early chapters of Matthew's gospel. And just to bring you up to speed, um, I couldn't really remember what we did before Christmas, so I had to look myself. Halfway through Matthew chapter 2, back in chapter 1, Matthew started, you'll remember, with a genealogy which linked Jesus to the greatest figures in Israel's history. Um, So Jesus is like Jewish royalty, this genealogy tells us, like if you could trace your heritage back to the first fleet here in Australia. But Jesus isn't just uh, royalty by birth. Um, In the genealogy, it reveals that Jesus is God's promised king. He's God's promised Messiah, the the saviour that the Jewish people have been waiting for with great anticipation. And that revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, this king, well, it's the backstory to our passage today. Because if you'll remember the Christmas story, when the wise men came from the east uh, to come and visit uh, baby Jesus, King Herod was furious when he found out that they'd come to worship the king of the Jews. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east, uh, they came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, we've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And so you'll remember that Herod sets out to find where baby Jesus is so that he can have him killed and eliminate the threat to his throne. Um, And so Herod calls the Magi secretly to find out from the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report back to me so that I might go and worship him. Of course, we know that he wasn't going to worship Jesus He wanted to have him killed. And uh, so the uh, wise men, they do. They go and they find Jesus. They give him their gifts of what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They worship Jesus, but they don't obey Herod. And verse 12, they'd been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And so they went back to their country by another route. And that brings us to our passage today, sometimes called the escape to Egypt or the flight to Egypt. Well, when... The Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and he said, get up and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Have you ever had one of those kind of dreams where you wake up and it's so vivid that it feels like it was completely real and you remember every detail? Um, Well, uh, Joseph, he has exactly that kind of dream. 
It's an angel of the Lord has visited him, and it's not the first time this has happened, has it? A chapter ago, before Jesus was born, the angel of the Lord had visited him in a dream again to tell him that Mary would be pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and that it happened exactly as the angel said. And so now when the angel visits Joseph again, he knows that he has to listen. The angel says, get up and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. And stay there until I tell you, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, this was no idle threat. Um, Herod was known for his bloodthirstiness, especially towards anybody who threatened his throne. Uh, When he came to power, um, Herod had uh, uh, all of the remaining kings from the dynasty before him, the Hasmoneans, he had them all executed. Uh, The Jewish ruling um, uh, council, the Sanhedrin, he executed more than half of those on the council. Apparently, in a fit of rage one day, he had 300 officers of the court killed. Uh, And then he had his own wife, his own son, his own mother-in-law, in in fact, sorry, three of his sons executed because he suspected them of plotting to take the throne. Um, He was a bloodthirsty man. Uh, Horrible. Um, I think it's ironic as well because Herod was actually only the, the king or the ruler, a vassal ruler of a small part of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Emperor would um, install regional kings to subdue the people and to, 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 to kind of uh, give them a little bit of leadership, but really this leader was a puppet of the Roman Emperor. Um, but you know, even the Roman Emperor Augustus knew how dangerous Herod was. Um, he famously said it was safer to be uh, Herod's pig than his son. Two words in Greek for pig and son are kind of almost the same. Safer to be his pig than his son. Herod was a dangerous man, and everybody knew it, and I think that's probably why all of Jerusalem was upset and disturbed. And so, and so when the angel tells Joseph to flee, he gets up, and he goes. In the middle of the night, he takes Mary and Jesus, and they leave for Egypt. You might be asking, why would they go to Egypt? Well, obviously, the, the angel told them to go to Egypt. Um, for practical reasons, Egypt um, was a good refuge. There was a large Jewish community in Alexandria, possibly even a million people. There were whole um, parts of the town enclaves that were um, dedicated to Jewish people. And, uh, and so it was a safe place to go, but it wasn't just practical. There was a theological reason why Jesus had to go back to Egypt for refuge. And this takes us back into the history of God's people. See, Egypt was a refuge for the Israelites way back in the book of Genesis. Do you remember uh, there was a great famine in the land? It lasted for seven years. There was no food and there was no more grain. And so the sons of Jacob, those 12 sons, or 11 of them anyway, went up to Egypt to buy food. And there, the brother that they'd sold into slavery, the littlest brother, the original Joseph, he had become great in the Pharaoh's kingdom, hadn't he? In fact, he was the the second only in command to the Pharaoh and he rescued his family there. He was able to provide for them and and that was the the start of the people of God growing into this great nation called Israel. So do you see there's an echo of Israel's history, the history of God's people played out now in Jesus' life. It's history, history repeating itself, not in the same way but in a symbolic way. And because we also remember what happened to God's people after uh, in Egypt after Pharaoh's death when the new Pharaohs came and they didn't remember um, they didn't remember Joseph or what he'd done. And so the new Pharaohs made the Israelites into slaves and for 400 years they remained in slavery in Egypt until God called them out of Egypt. 
in the Exodus. And Matthew reminds us of that here when he uh, quotes the Hosea passage that we read earlier. He says, So what was fulfilled, uh, what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So in Hosea, uh, God says, out of Egypt I called my son. The son is Israel, it's God's people. Um, He calls Israel out of Egypt. But Matthew takes that prophecy and he says that it finds its true meaning in Jesus. The prophecy is fulfilled when God calls Jesus out of Egypt after the death of Herod. Um, And there's a parallel, but but there's also a new meaning given. So God called his people out of Egypt, um, but Jesus... Uh, he's, sorry, God called his people Israel out of Egypt, and now Jesus is a, is a new kind of Israel. Um, he's the new Israel. He's the new son of God. Um, let's hit pause on that for a moment because I can see people nodding off. Um, very technical. We're going to come back to it in a minute. Because Matthew, um, he's kind of jumped ahead in the story. Uh, at verse 16, we jump back to the moment when Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the wise men. So when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he'd learned from the Magi. It's this horrific idea, isn't it? Um, clearly, Herod didn't know that Joseph had fled with Jesus to, um, to, to uh, Egypt. He didn't know and so to make sure that his throne wasn't threatened, Herod orders the infanticide, the, the murder of all of the baby boys two years and under, in Bethlehem and its vicinity. Um, Bethlehem wasn't a, a large place, so we're probably talking 20 or 30 little boys. Uh, but that's still horrific, isn't it? 20 or 30 children slaughtered. It tells us that Herod would do nothing. He would stop at nothing to protect his power. And this story is also meant to remind us of Pharaoh back in the Old Testament, in the days before the Exodus, do you remember? The enslaved Jewish people, uh, the, the nation had grown so great in size that Pharaoh was worried that the Jewish people would rise up and fight against uh, Egypt. And so if you remember that Pharaoh ordered that every Hebrew boy that was born should be thrown into the Nile. Do you remember that? History repeats itself, doesn't it? in unhinged leaders. But of course, that order that Pharaoh gave all that time ago was also the beginning of the deliverance of God's people. As baby Moses was hidden in a basket in the reeds, Uh, he was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, and Moses would go on to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and in the Exodus. And and so come back to our, our passage. Matthew portrays Jesus as a type of Moses, a new Moses, ready to lead a new Exodus. Um, And I can't say it better or more succinctly than Michael Green says in the commentary that I read this week, so I'm just going to put it up on the screen and read it to you. Have a listen to this. See, the escape to Egypt, it was historical, but it was also highly symbolic. And Matthew means us to understand this. It was a a recapitulation, a fulfillment of Israel's history. Israel became a nation after being called into Egypt. And the exodus from Egypt was a central point in the history of this nation that was becoming the people of God. Pharaoh tried to destroy the people in Egypt, but Moses brought them out of Egypt into the land of promise. Herod, a new Pharaoh, tried to kill the firstborn Jesus, and in his rage he slaughtered other innocent firstborn in Bethlehem. He failed to kill the Saviour just as Pharaoh had failed to kill Moses. And eventually Moses brought the children of Israel out of the land of bondage and death. And Moses' successor, Jesus was to bring the people out of a worse bondage and a worse death, the death of sin. It's clever, isn't it? 
to see the way that God is using repeated history to begin to undo the evils of history. Jesus takes what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament and he brings redemption. He brings a new start, a new future, and a new chapter. And I think Matthew, he's the master of subtlety on this. Um, as we look into the Old Testament prophecies that uh, Matthew quotes, they're not kind of simple ones where it just says, well, Moses brought them out of the promised land and they all lived happily ever after. Because that's not what happened when the people came out of um, Egypt, was it? We know from the history that they didn't live happily ever after. Even right after God led them out of Egypt, he rescued them and led them through the Red Sea on dry ground. Even as he led them with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, even as his presence rumbled over the top of Mount Sinai in a cloud and with lightning and with thunder, even during that time, the Israelites worshipped other gods, didn't they? Do you remember they made gods of gold and bronze and they said, this is who rescued us. They persisted in sin even until God exiled them again and sent them away from the promised land with weeping and wailing, just as he'd exiled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden because of their sin. See, brothers and sisters, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. You and I are doomed to repeat the mistakes that the Israelites made. You and I are just as susceptible to sin. Do you know, Moses, he couldn't fix the problem of sin. And the laws that God gave on Mount Sinai, they couldn't fix the problem of sin. Living in the promised land couldn't fix the problem of sin. Sin required a bigger fix than any of these human interventions could achieve. It required a new Moses. It required a new exodus. It required a new return from exile, a new heart and a new spirit for us as humans. And that's something that only God could do. Uh, one of the hardest parts, I think, about parenting is how to discipline your children. Uh, when they're little, disciplining your kids is often fairly simple. Is, you know, as you teach them to share or you teach them to um, you know, be polite or to take turns. That's relatively simple. Um, I know it's a bit more complex than that. But as kids get older, um, the issues get much more complex again. And how do you help your teenage or your young adult kids make good choices? How do you help them see when they're making bad choices? How do you balance love and grace with accountability? How do you do that? Well, in Hosea 11, the prophecy that's referred to at the beginning of our passage today, and we hear the inner monologue of God as he decides how to deal with his own wayward children, his people. See, after centuries of the Israelites living in the promised land but seeking after idols at the same time, God prepares to discipline his children by sending them into exile. Listen to Hosea 11, the agony that it causes God. He says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. Do you remember before it said they followed after idols? My people are determined to turn from me, God says. And so what are you to do? He says this, how can I give you up? How can I give you up, Ephraim? It's, an, it's a name for God's people. How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admiral? And how can I make you like Zeboim, these places that have been destroyed? God says, my heart is changed within me. All of my compassion is aroused. He says, I will not carry out my fierce anger, for I am God and not man. I'm the Holy One among you. God is the Holy One among us. See, our God looks at the problem of sin and he knows that he can't let sin run its course. Uh, James says in his book, sin, when it's full grown, leads to death. See, God can't leave us in our sin, otherwise it would destroy us. 
God doesn't want to see us destroyed. All his compassion is aroused. But he's God and not man. He's the Holy One amongst us. And so God sends his only son, Jesus, to lead us home from exile, to bring us back into the garden, to call us out of Egypt and out of slavery to sin. Instead of handing us over for judgment, Jesus is handed over in our place. God chooses not to carry out his fierce anger upon us. Instead, he quenches it in his son, Jesus, who receives the punishment that we deserve willingly on the cross. And in Jesus, that plan of salvation that that was begun in the Old Testament, it finds its fulfillment on the cross, in the Christ, the Messiah. And that means that all of our failures and all of our faults as children who run away from God, as, as, as people who turn away from Him, they can all be forgiven in Jesus. And you know, brothers and sisters, even when we find history repeating itself, even when we find ourselves falling into sin again, even then, even when we fail to learn from history, He's faithful. Jesus does what we cannot do. Jesus takes our sin and He nails it to the cross. And he redeems us and he redeems our history. And he makes a new future for us if we follow him. Will we pray? Thank you, Father, that you are the Holy One among us, that you are God and not man. Thank you that your unchangeable character means you choose mercy, not judgment. Thank you that means you will not carry out your fierce anger because Jesus has stood in our place. Loving Father, help us to learn from history, keep us from sin, and help us to turn to you. By your Spirit, change our hearts that we might love you. Thank you for forgiving our failures and keep us in Christ until we meet again. Amen.